this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Nancy Rappaport. We discuss how family therapists can be critical players in navigating the school systems, practices and approaches with students who are struggling in school, and the passion for the possible. Welcome to the AFTA Podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I'm your host. I'll be speaking with Dr. Nancy Rappaport, who is a part-time associate professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is also a child psychiatrist and family therapist. She's published a book on how to work with children in schools with challenging behaviors, as well as a memoir. She has an upcoming novel on intergenerational trauma and is a member of AFTA. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nancy Rappaport. Is there anything that you wanted to add to your introduction that I may not have mentioned? Just that, first of all, I'm so happy to be here with you. Uh, And uh, I was a teacher in between um, finishing my college education and um, going to medical school. And I taught preschool through third grade in Mm -hmm. Harlem and total respect for teachers' jobs and how hard they are, particularly during the pandemic. And a shout out to any teacher who might stumble across this. Yes, shout out to them. They are in my family and community. So much love for teachers. So Dr. Nancy Rappaport, if I could ask you, um, given your kind of long history in the work, what's been grabbing your attention these days? School violence, the, you know, the, the, the way that our our country can't figure out how to get rid of uh, uh, weapons and and children being injured that's that certainly with the recent loss in Texas and the debacle oh. um, my heart heart goes out to that community yeah that's been really tragic how have you been making sense of some of these? If you don't mind me asking, how have you been making sense of school violence, particularly given your background and well, work? I've been a child psychiatrist for 23 years, and my professional career has definitely been shaped by school violence. I, have, uh, I do a lot of trainings on how to do what, are, what some people like to call threat assessments. I call safety assessments in schools, and it started after Columbine um, in 1999, where schools wanted help with trying to figure out when are there transient threats, sort of threats that are set in the heat of the moment, and um, substantive threats, threats that may have some impact. And so many times, and it actually will relate to this podcast, so many times when we hear about school shootings, we hear about the multiple opportunities for intervention that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think we should have metal detectors. I think we need to have human detectors and we need to have caring communities that mobilize when kids are in crisis and hear the sound of alarm. It's really sad to think about the long history you've had in this work. Well, it's very exciting that you've been doing it, but it's sad to think about the time you've spent in this since Columbine. And if you don't mind me asking... It's so sad. When When I wrote articles after the recent school shooting, because, um, uh, I realized that I also wrote about Sandy Hook 
Mm. And and if you look on my website, I mean, I've been writing about what are the appropriate kinds of interventions, and you could recycle um, my some of my articles because I'm I'm trying to encourage people to 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 be uh, you know not to make our our schools into fortresses, but to to really be thoughtful uh, in our understanding of students and intervene early. Um, so you're right. There's, there's, you know, you have to hold both. That's big in family therapy, right? You have to hold the hope that we are going to come through with policies that make our children safer and also hold the devastation and try to make sure you make every effort not to, to avert those kinds of events. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm curious if you don't mind me asking, like, as you've been in this work for multiple decades now in this particular thing of school violence, how has your understandings shifted or changed from Columbine to now? And for those listening, we're in July of 2022 during this interview. Uh, well, the good news is, and that's partly why I'm talking to you today, Navid, is because I think there's much more of a push for us to leverage uh, um, optimizing kids in schools. I mean, kids spend over 15,000 hours on average with teachers and administrators through their schooling. And so clinicians, like clinicians who may be listening today, have an opportunity to empower a family to navigate a system that deeply impacts their kid. And, and we, as clinicians, want to have certain information so that kids get the services because there are services that uh, we can help families access that can really uh, change their trajectory and it's high stakes. So teaching our families how to advocate to get the needs that they want is really important. And one of the things I love about family therapy and love about AFTA is that emphasis on systems. Mm -hmm. And so, I came into family therapy late. Uh, um, I came, uh, this will date me, but I came in my, in my 50s. I'd been working in schools for 20 years and fell in love with the, in, in some ways, my work, I worked in one school district for 23 years. And you could say I worked with a family for 23 years because schools have a family atmosphere. Mm. Um, but I, you know, trained at the Ackerman Institute and have gotten private supervision because I, feel like the catalyst for change with families is huge. So I'm trying to pay it back to the family community, you know, the family therapy community by saying, okay, I've learned a lot from family therapists. Can I share some of my knowledge around um, uh, advocacy for children in your role as a family therapist? So correct me if I'm wrong, something about your history in family therapy and your attention to family systems, some, I don't know if this is the way you describe it, but like parallels or noticings about the ways that the school system reflects a family. No, system. that's fair. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And then you had mentioned something earlier, and forgive me, I'm going to just name a couple of things you'd mentioned because there's a constellation of curiosities I have, and I'm hoping you can just speak to them. Like, I'll try. Because you're talking about like, there's a, something that stood out to my ears not wanting to make schools fortresses and figuring out a way to create human detectors versus metal detectors. Yeah. And then you said something about optimizing kids in schools. 
and empowering families. And I wonder if you could say more about that and if there is an intersection between those ideas or how... Well, I guess one of the one of the ideas is some families can feel very defensive. Um, we know that there's a disproportionate number of uh, children of color who get suspended in detention, mm. and um, and that there is implicit bias, or um, and uh, and that can come out when schools are feeling frightened. There's a lot of soft signs mm. that can get kids suspended, and um, I always feel like it, I incur, I do a lot of teaching of child fellows. Those are folks that are trying to learn how to become child psychiatrists and adult residents. And I always encourage therapists to talk about the weapon policy with their patients. And I don't think it's a, it, and I think it's a good idea as a family therapist, if you're working with a child who has ADD or um, in who might be the identified patient who's impulsive, that letting them know what can be misinterpreted as um, not misinterpreted, what can be interpreted as a potential threat and how that might torpedo their education uh, is a really, I think it's the, it, it's as, uh, yeah, I, I think it's the same responsibility we have as when you in individual therapy talk about if, you, if you're suicidal or homicidal, these are the things that we do. I think it's, it's a part of psychoeducation that's incredibly important because being in the line of having done safety assessments, I've seen so many kids have done something impulsively, which then can be a huge crisis for the family. So if we could prevent that, that would be awesome. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the, um, or rather, I'm just drawn to this idea that the implicit bias uh, heightens after shootings. Oh, absolutely. You have you have children who become, uh, who have threat assessments done on them. If, you, for instance, if you have uh, Virginia Tech was a. Um, was an Asian student, and then you'll have an uptick of threat assessments done on a, mm. you know, so it, it it follows oftentimes the the ethnicity of a, of a school shooting you'll see, or just events that happen, and, and I guess it's, it, it, it's the same way as in a family, uh, you're impacted by the environment that, that you're in, um, and so if you know in in my state there was a uh teacher who was beheaded after school and you know that caused a lot more understandable fear but the fear got expressed sometimes by by you know making assumptions about kids behavior mm. so jeez this just seems like a terribly complicated it's so complicated and i'm sort of derailing us i'd rather get us back to what can family therapists do well that's that's where i was headed because yeah it's so complicated and you're talking about this like zone of interpretation that the schools and school systems are positioned to make some assessments and you said you you were talking about like soft assessments or what can be interpreted as Mm -hmm. potential risk factors and then you're also talking about as i'm understanding it ways that implicit bias follow certain shootings for and you named like a minority group and i'm my my very surface level understanding is that a lot of the school shootings currently are being white kids white kids (laughs) 
they are. So there's a curiosity if like that implicit bias is follows white students the same ways it might follow. I, I wish it did. It doesn't. I mean, mm. unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think if generally, if you're a white kid in a school setting, you're, you know, again, one of the things that I've been involved with and I say it anywhere that I can is there's the, um, Safe School Initiative, which was the FBI and Department of Education that came up with a process of doing evaluations. And Dewey Cornell, who is out of um, University of Virginia, has done elegant studies about how important it is to be very factual and evidence-based uh, about collecting information. And if you have a system in place in schools that do a proper assessment, you see a decrease in some of the implicit bias, mm. and a decrease in kids of color being suspended um, it, so it's, it's a, um, schoolta.com is his website. <laughs> and I mean, he does tons of trainings for schools around helping do a better job. Yeah. And I've certainly devoted a lot of time trying to help support schools. Um, but I guess what I wanted to say is I still want to highlight what families, therapists can do to support kids and what, yeah. do you mind sharing about that? Well, I, I just want to orient um, first, because I, I think many therapists don't always know, you know, the last time they might have had experience with schools might have been when they were a student themselves mm. in elementary or, or high school, and maybe they were in a parochial school or a private school. Uh, so just to orient that if they have uh, students who are in a public school, you know, to be maybe even mindful of asking when they have a family, uh, more detailed questions about the school setting. So I just wanted to give a little bit of information about that. So you've got the general ed classroom where, uh, and then you have sometimes kids are pulled out for special ed. And then you have for kids who are really dysregulated sometimes, or uh, kids who are on the spectrum who might need specialized services, you can have what's called a self-contained classroom. And that's when you have a special ed teacher. And sometimes you can have one teacher to six kids. Mm. And then if students are still struggling in a public school setting and aren't able to make progress, they, if they're in a special ed program, uh, an individual, uh, they can sometimes be placed in an out of district placement, a therapeutic school. So just to give folks the landscape yeah. of it, um, I, I think is Im important. And, and to flag that you may have, say, a student who comes in, a, a family that comes into you because they're in crisis because of school avoidance. They're, they're, their child hasn't gone to school. They've missed over 100 days. Now, that may sound exaggerated, but there's, you know, many of you as family therapists probably have one or two cases where students aren't showing up in school. And, you know, I have a two and a half hour lecture on how, the differential diagnosis of school avoidance. But oftentimes what happens is there's a bottleneck and kids don't get referred for a special ed evaluation. And, you know, there's a high number of students, 15% of the population who have learning disabilities. And if that doesn't get diagnosed, then what happens, and, and the research shows this, kids show up with behavioral difficulties. So you could have a kid in your class, in your, in your family therapy session, where um, you're trying to work out 
what's going on in the family system. What is this child trying to communicate? But, but we're possibly could be missing the idea that we need to figure out that they're spending huge, you know, eight hours a day in the classroom and they can't read or they have a processing difficulty or they're distracted. And maybe it's because it's a poor school and they have, you know, teachers that are, that aren't meeting the needs of the student, but possibly it could be an undiagnosed learning disorder and sort of trying to encourage family therapists to put that into their differential and then be able to work with the family to help them figure out how to advocate so that their child gets the services they need. That's a passion for me, you know. Well, I wonder too, if Dr. Rappaport, if you could share a little bit about some of those. Well, I'm very, I'm very drawn by your passion. I want to like circle back to that and some <laughs> curiosities about what, what even like invigorates you about this. But I do want to make an opportunity for you to share if it's okay. Are there certain approaches or questions or assessments or ways that you've learned that are help, very useful or um, helpful in sussing out some of these differentials like you mentioned or um well you know in the book i wrote the behavior code which was for teachers i sort of have sos tips and one of the tips is that behavior is communication so not assuming that if a child is sometimes the child may be acting up at home but it's actually because they're inordinately um frustrated in, in the school setting. So just being able to start to ask questions about, you know, uh, is your child reluctant to go to school? Um, uh, how, how early did your child learn how to read? Is, is reading something that comes easy? Is it something that they initiate on their own? If you notice when you're asking a child a question, and again, it, if English is a second language, that's another variable. But if you notice when you ask a question that there's a long pause before a child starts to answer the question, you might put into the differential that this is a kid who has processing difficulties. Mm. And that makes it really hard to sit in class because... Um, they have slow processing speed and, um, so that a lot of things are passing them by while they're in the classroom. So does that give you a flavor of the kinds of things you might be thinking about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, let me know if I'm on track here that like, uh, as like there's perhaps moments where teachers or therapists are finding themselves frustrated with certain experiences with or behaviors uh, a student might be expressing to kind of like slow that process down, consider what's being communicated or rather what kind of uh, what the behavior is kind of offering in terms of a window into the student's world. And the experience that they may be having at school, which they're not able to tell you. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with kids with learning disorders where they just think they're a failure because they don't have, they haven't, I mean, sometimes kids don't get picked up with a learning disorder until they're in 10th grade. Do you know how frustrating that is for a student? So if one family therapist listening to this says to themselves, oh my gosh, I've been working with this student, with this family, and I hadn't really thought about the idea of suggesting to them that they, that the family ask for an individual ed plan. Mm -hmm. And, um, and maybe this is a, 
a, a family that's got has an individual ed plan, but they're not. I don't know if they're getting their services or not. But let me figure out in my practice an educational advocate that might be able to support this family, and let me team up with that so that they because trying to go up against the school. The schools, again, I have a lot of respect for schools. I've worked with them for 25 nice. years, but they will wear you down. Mm-hmm. That's They will wear you down. So having somebody who's familiar with how to navigate the school system is absolutely key. And, you know, it's, you know, sometimes, well, families that might have more needs Having an educational advocate, um, you know, I know the names Federation for Special Needs and there are other places within each state that has them can make or break them getting access to services because with an individual ed plan. So can I just say the different say what an individual ed plan is and sort of so an individual ed plan came out of legislation. It started in 1975 and it says that. uh, Certain students are eligible for special ed services, and you go through a multidisciplinary evaluation, and then a determination is made whether you get special ed um, requirements. And you can have uh, academic testing, psychological testing, vision and hearing testing, and there are, um, and what's important about it is there are lots of federal laws that protect it, and most importantly, there's money if you need a therapeutic out-of-district placement. So if you have a severely impaired child that's in the family, sometimes if they're super impaired, they're going to get access to special ed. It's a no-brainer. But sometimes it's going to be a very depressed kid who might be suicidal. Or, um, And if you go through that process with special ed, you can access funding for therapeutic schools. Mm. Um, so that's a make or break for a kid. There's a whole other category called 504, which is more um, that came through a rehabilitation act it's easier to access but there's no funding so helping families get an um, uh, individual ed plan and start that ball rolling is really important and um there the parent can go to the school with a letter requesting that um yeah if i could if i could ask you a question because it's kind of what i'm stuck on right now um uh, you know, you're, you're mentioning, I hope there's, if there's even one family therapist who considers it, I guess I'll just immediately raise my hand and I'm already one of those people thinking about some clients I've worked with. And if you could be, tell me, I'd be curious to riff on it just to help you yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. So you get, you get a free child psychiatrist school consultation. Yeah, this is, you know, we could do it live for folks to receive. I would yeah. be honored. Uh, yeah. Who, who would have thought that I'd get this like amazing consultation opportunity? I, I'm, I'm okay. So without that, I'm just gonna obscure the sure. identifying info. But this family, um, they're a refugee Middle Eastern family. Uh, the child speaks four languages, has had like a long uh, experience with bullying in the schools, mm-hmm. um, has experienced sexual assault, and they are just feeling really isolated and not connected with peers in their school. As a result, you were mentioning those 100 days of missing school. This yeah. is one of those contexts. Mm-hmm. School came forward with uh, f- a fairly threatening approach 
to yes. uh, the family saying like if they don't attend XYZ will happen. You know, they had the social worker president and everything. There was a school resource officer in the room. Yes. Oh, I could just riff just can we pause here and I can please, just riff on please. this part. Okay. So just the and this is just using it as an opportunity for teaching points. Please do. Uh he's the this um child speaks four languages. Sometimes what happens when a when a student goes into a, a school and they speak a second language is that people assume if they're not making progress, it's because um, they have English as a second language, which may be true, but sometimes it also can be because they have an underlying learning disorder that's not diagnosed. So I did research on Haitian families where um, we had grant money, so we were able to push back on the idea that some of these kids weren't progressing because of English as a second language. And oftentimes when they come in as English as a second language, they have self-contained classrooms where they have a much smaller teacher-student ratio. And then they're pushed out into the general ed and they don't have the support. So you can, a tip off would be asking the family, like, did he start to avoid school when he went, you know, how did he get his ESL services, his English as a second language services? Was he in a small classroom with, you know, what was the teacher student ratio? And then did he get moved into a classroom with 30 kids and one teacher and you started to see him start to slip off and miss school? So that just, again, just a, a way I'm trying to show you how the process of thinking about it. And then if you took the bullying in the school, there is, first of all, the Biggest mistake that I see so often happen when I've done safety assessments with bullying, because sometimes kids will take that into their own hands, right? They, they get tired of being bullied. They feel like the adults are ineffectual. And so I'm just going to take care of it. Right. And then they become the identified troublemaker. Yes. So I always encourage clinicians and families to be documenting the bullying because it doesn't get oftentimes bullied. Um, the, bu the bullying behavior doesn't get documented. And um, so making sure that in, in your notes that you're writing down incidences oh. that may have been happening so that that can be used in terms of if you get an educational advocate, they're able to leverage the school about um, that this child needs to be in what the, the psycho, the educational jargon is the least restrictive setting, but that they need, that they're not being protected. And that's, okay, and then let's just pretend that this family, not pretend, I don't mean to minimize it, but no, let's please. just think this family uh, had a lot of trauma happen to them. So you have a student who is easily triggered. That's when I would say getting an individual ed plan is really important because if they have documented PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you want, there are certain discipline protection with a special ed plan so that if, say, for example, he's in the cafeteria and um, he gets freaked out because there's, you know, I don't know, a loud bang that came from the soda machine and he turns around and by accident his tray ends up hitting another kid. But now he's being suspended. If, if he has, you know, PTSD, you have a little bit more leverage to advocate for him around what are the kinds of accommodations. Again, I'm just riffing on this, but is there a place that he could eat that's a little quieter? 
that's not as overstimulating while you're building up his reservoir to be able to manage being in a lab cafeteria. Um, so, uh, and then the hundred day absences in this whole, this is again where I feel it's incredibly intimidating to be at one of these school meetings many times. Yeah. And I don't think family should go alone. They need, if you're listening to it, I would try to identify who can go with them that can be an advocate. Um, with my child fellows, I'm always saying, look, if you, if you it, and any trainees that are listening, if you can go to one of these meetings, it is a huge alliance building. And, um, but, but the whole kind of threatening nature that often happens where the schools are pissed off because they feel like if the parents would just do their job, they could shovel this kid out the door and get him to school. And the parents often are feeling like if you would just figure out what my kid needs, I wouldn't be in this predicament. And so that's where, again, depending on what the appetite of a family therapist is, that's a systems problem, right? I mean, that's the same thing that happens with parents, right? The blame game. And uh, Were you in the room with me with this client? Because you're <laughs> right on the head there. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's why I'm sort of, I mean, we're just beginning a conversation, but it's just me inviting family therapists to get curious. It's what you started out with, inviting you to be curious. I mean, you don't have to read the behavior code. I'm not here trying to hawk my book, but getting curious about who in my community is a good educational advocate. Mm. You know, um, do I call, you know, uh, there's a list on the department of education in, you know, in everybody's state, you could just put educational advocates in whatever neighborhood you're in and see what, and then, but probably you want to ask, uh, a, a child clinicians often might have a name of a, of a, good educational advocate they use. Um, for me in Boston, it's the Greater Boston for Legal Services. They have um, lawyers that have done some amazing work. Uh, sometimes I think I should drop being a mental health clinician and I should have been a lawyer because sometimes you can get schools to agree to things because they didn't follow the process. But that, that means you have to know what the process is. Right. <laughs> Well, what you're describing seems to extend beyond family therapy as kind of this clinical mental health thing and into a lot of political activism almost with the school and the school systems. Oh, I'm saying step out of your box, please. If you're going to work with families, families are embedded in schools and you have an opportunity, a real opportunity to, in a, to help parents advocate for their kids and, and, um, I, I think to be able to empower parents to make a better setting for their um, their child, that's huge. Mm. You know, um, I'm glad you were there though that you didn't let them get intimidated. Well, I was I was a bit stuck myself because in some ways, you know, speaking to systems, I could see you nicely described both positions of the mm -hmm. family and the school, and one of the things that I was not really sure on how to even address the school wanted to offer part of the contract that they are having to, the family assign was uh, doing an ERMS assessment, like a mental health assessment on top of the IEP that gets integrated into this like psychosocial piece. Mm -hmm. The family was really against it. One, I, th I wonder about some of the people present in the ways that mm -hmm. there was a sense of intimidation, but also this idea that, 
they're going to dredge up all the stuff that my child has just worked through and has mm. come out of. And now they're going to re-bring that up. And I don't want them to touch any of that. Just I just but want you, them to teach them. You could step in that way, though. You could say, I can provide. I've been treating. How long have you been treating this family for? About a year. I've been treating this family for a year. And I could help with that piece to um, if, if the parents give you permission and that it may be more traumatizing for this child to have to talk about it in this setting. But, um, you know, if you extrapolated a few things that might be helpful, um, for instance, not having eight people that are educators in a room interrogating their child with a school resource officer. You, you know, I've done that sometimes where I might say, you know, it'd be a lot easier for us to have this meeting if we, um, if we could pare down the number of school folks that are in the, in, in, because this is hard for us to, to navigate. Um, you know, I appreciate that. I just want to say too to folks, cause you're you, in some ways, I feel like you're speaking to trainees and folks yeah. on their journey to therapy and I want to say myself, in this case, as a licensed therapist, it took a lot of confidence. And even then, I don't know how much I achieved it to feel like I can speak to the schools. Mm. And what I'm hearing you say is that, like, actually, like, there is a role that therapists can play. It probably yes. does require some confidence, but that there yes. is an avenue into influencing the systems, amplifying the voice of the family. I appreciate your honesty, Navid. That's what I started with, that many of you, many of us, when we end up walking into a school trying to advocate for a patient, unless we're a school psychologist or school social worker, God bless every school psychologist and school <laughs> social worker right now, especially having made through three years of COVID, that we might, I mean, I was a bad girl when I was a kid student. So I had to get over the fact that, I mean, not super bad. I didn't get into DYS, but you know, I was just a naughty kid that was kind of ADD ish. And so the fact that now I'm a peer with a principal, <laughs> you have to, you know, in ter terms of like internal family systems, you got to update your kid. You got to tell them, you know, right. You know, I'm, I, I got some, I got some street cred now, you know, I'm not in trouble and I, and, you know, walk like you have um, the gold in your pocket, you know? Yeah, so. I love that. Well, it, it kind of makes me want to ask too, if you don't mind circling back a little bit, Dr. Rappaport, what brought, what, kind of ignited this passion for this work? What drew you to this particular set of inquiries that you're pursuing? Well, you know, uh, my memoir, In Her Wake, um, A Child Psychiatrist Explores the Mystery of Her Mother's Suicide. My mom died when I was four years old mm -hmm. and um, by suicide, and school saved my lives. I mean, I was, um, I was a bright kid enough, bright kid enough, and um, I always look for that. I worked in a, in a school-based health center for 23 years, and I always look for those kids where when they're being referred to me, people say, oh, she raises hell, but I love that kid. And I, I, I'd like to think I was like one of those kids. I, I would, you know, I remember talking to my 10th grade teacher when I was writing my memoir, and she'd say, I, I'd go home and I'd try to figure out how do I reach this kid? And so I, uh, I don't give up easy. And, um, and I think that teachers are our heroines and heroes, but they're more heroines and that the, the level of challenge that they manage, you know, if we have a dysregulated kid in our office, they're here for an hour, you say goodbye, you know, <laughs> they go away and they come back next week, but you get a week to recover. Um, right. you know, uh, teachers are on the front line and the, 
the kind of resourcefulness and love and um, effort that I see so many educators make, that makes me passionate because I feel like, okay, well, my job as a mental health clinician is to support them so they can keep being present with these, um, just the way as a family therapist, you're trying to support parents so that they can go back into the, um, the work of caring for their children. I feel the same way about teachers, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I've been at it for a long time. I've been doing it for 25 years. So I, you know, I, I've seen kids that were in schools where I would try everything and maybe it didn't seem like it worked, but, but, you know, five years later, I find out that they, you know, graduated from high school or, um, you know, I remember one, one situation where it was a divorced family. Divorce is the worst. You want to see a kid not work in school, take a piss and vinegar, really angry divorce situation. And you have an A motivated kid. And I had one of these kids and I did everything to try to turn them around. It wasn't working. And then, you know, 14 years later, I got an email about the fact that he'd graduated from social work school and had figured wow. it out. So that kind of wow. passion for the possible, like you don't know when the possible is, but you're going to stay hopeful for when it might happen. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I was really lucky. Uh, I had the kind of job where I could refuel during the summer and for those of you listening now, <laughs> summer's a really good time to refuel for all of us. And, you know, by May, you can get, you know, you get tired. You, yeah. you lose a little bit of your hope and then you fuel yourself up and you come back in September and you're like, okay, I'm good to go. So oh, I love, I love that phrase, passion for the possible. I'm definitely going to pocket that. That's a, I stole that. That's William Sloan Coffin said that. <laughs> oh, well, I just, everything stolen. So, yes. Yeah. But I appreciate you passing it on to me. Yeah, and I have to shout out to my wife, who's a teacher, mother-in-law, oh. school psychologist, aunts who are teachers. So, yeah, I just really... So, which book. grade does your wife teach? She's a high school teacher. Nice. Yeah. That's a great age. Yeah. yeah. So, if I could ask a question, just kind of look back a little bit. You are talking about your memoir. You are talking mm -hmm. about, like, interviewing your 10th grade teacher. Mm -hmm. I love that you kind of... We're, I'm assuming that you've kind of went through this process of reconnecting with old teachers to get a sense of the student and person you were, if that's a fair assumption I'm making. I read old report cards more than I interviewed teachers. <laughs> wow, I actually, okay. And I went, but I, but it, one, there was one really, uh, what, um, I wrote a fourth grade short story about, uh, it doesn't matter, but it was, it was basically like an x-ray of my unconscious in fourth grade. And that I put in the memoir. And it was, I still think about that teacher. And I bet you each one of us either has a teacher that shamed us, that shaped us, or a teacher that made us feel, you know, the passion for the possible. Mm. And she was a really special teacher that, um, you know, maybe I'm a writer because, you know, I wrote 52 pages on Iceland in fourth grade. Who does that? And she allowed me to bring in rhubarb pie and to have two classes, you know, to read half of it. So I, I have a tremendous respect for how uh, each of us can care about each other and the, the people we work with. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. You know? Did that process of 
reading your old report cards and talking to your old teachers, did that influence some of the work you're doing or affect some of the ways you're thinking about um, this work? Uh, or perhaps uh, other effects in your life? I, I'm not sure the question, but I think I love telling stories. I, I, I honor storytelling, um, both with my patients and, and with, you know, um, with my fascination with how do we, uh, how do we describe things in a way that draws us closer? And, and, um, you know, that's, that's what I'd say to that. that yeah. you know, that's, yeah, we all thanks have a story to tell. Yeah. Thanks for letting me ask that. Well, Dr. Rappaport, it's been really quite a delight to talk to you. And as we're kind of starting to round our, our time here, I'm wondering if there's some, some things that you had hoped I had asked that you could speak to or some, some items that you might want to mention. That perhaps well, just if anybody wants to get in touch with me, you know, my, my website's really easy. It's nancyrappaport.com. Happy to continue the conversation. And, um, you know, just uh, hoping to have highlighted that kids spend a huge amount of time in schools. And that if you can leverage that and um, do some prevention and some psychoeducation about what advocacy is po possible, um, that, you know, we could empower parents to help make the um, schools be more responsive to their children. And that's something I want to, I would encourage you all to just uh, think about. And if a child is struggling to put in your differential that maybe they have a learning disorder, maybe they need to have um, an evaluation done within the school setting to understand more about them. To, just to going back to what you said, stay curious about it. Don't assume. Just as when I was in school CL, you don't want to assume it's a family dynamic and lose track. Hold both. Yes. Possibly there's a, there's a um, something's not working in school and there's something that's, that needs to be unraveled in, in the family. Yeah, I appreciate that. Cause I think even, I think my weakness is I, even in this conversation, as we're chatting, I'm noticing that like my attention is really drawn to the context mm -hmm. and sometimes I'm losing track of the other th threads of influence. It's hard. It's, it's hard. especially hard if you've been doing it on, on zoom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Shout yeah, out. and I assume that if uh, myself or folks listening want to hear more about some of your ideas that we discussed here, they could go into your books and articles. And yes, my website is is designed to give as much information. So if you Beautiful. if you go to my website and you search behavior code, or you um, you can just browse around, and there's lots of things to download, and does have access to my my books. And I I have a chapter that sort of is for pediatricians, but it also could be for family therapists. I can either. I, yeah, if anybody emails me, I'm happy to share it. Beautiful. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Naveed. Thank you. Thank you.